Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs, Today, I'm back in Hanoi, Vietnam. Uh, today, please welcome Dr. Todd Finkel, author of Warren Buffett, Investor and Entrepreneur. Todd, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mark. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you, and I really enjoyed this book. I mean, everybody, you know, there's nobody in the planet, practically, that doesn't know who Warren Buffett is. He's the Michael Jordan of his space. That's for sure. So um, can you, first, before we get into the book and about Warren Buffett, can you give us a, um, a rundown of your professional background? Uh, first of all, I guess I want to uh, say thanks for having me on the show. And uh, I, I respect entrepreneurs enormously. I've spent a lot of my life studying entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. And you're certainly an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, as you said earlier. And uh, I I respect what you do and all the you, you're you're a teacher you told me i just learned that and uh also a serial entrepreneur and i think it's great mark i think what you're doing is wonderful and thank you from all of us for doing what you do well i appreciate you saying that for sure so i'm so glad to have you and all these folks who have tuned in are glad to hear about what you have to say about your experience of writing this book and and knowing warren buffett so let's start with your background. Tell us about how you got to where you're at now. Yeah, um, kind of succinctly, I'll tell you that I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which is where the Buffett family uh, grew up. And I actually went to high school and junior high school with Peter Buffett. Uh, and he was a couple of years older than me. And I hung around with a group of people, uh, really bright people. Uh, and we used to eat lunch every day in the cafeteria, and Peter was one of them. Uh, and so I used to see Peter every day in the cafeteria, and we'd talk and get to know each other a little bit. This was in 1976, and Berkshire Hathaway in 1976 was uh, trading for $69 a share. And nobody even really knew who Warren Buffett was, uh, at least at our lunch table, because <laughs> nobody talked about it. Uh, and, and Pete was just a guy with, you know, a, a baseball cap and ripped up jeans. So nobody, he didn't act like he was anything special. Uh, so Warren, when he wrote, he read my book and, uh, you know, I sent it to him. I had to get approval for him to uh, uh, approve, approve me of publishing the book. He said one of the things that he really liked about me publishing the book was that I was an original guy that knew the family before they got really wealthy and famous. Um, so that was kind of cool. But anyway, so I went on to school and uh, and I went to the University of Nebraska, Lincoln for my undergraduate degree. Uh, and after that, I started a investment partnership uh, with a friend of mine and we were studying the Elliott Wave Theory which is more technical analysis stuff. 
that was really popular back then. I did that for a couple of years. And then I went on and got an MBA at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, and I had a business while I was going to school there. So I already had two businesses by the time I was 27. Uh, and uh, then I went to the Mercantile to try and get a job there in Chicago. Uh, but they were only going to pay me $7 an hour. And that wasn't even enough to pay off my student loans. So I kind of blew that off. And uh, But it was a good experience interviewing down there. And uh, then I went back and got a PhD in entrepreneurship. And this was in 89 to 93. And there were only, as we were talking earlier, there were only two PhD programs uh, in entrepreneurship in, in 1989. That was Penn, which is where you used to teach, and Georgia. Um, so I ended up going on and getting a PhD in entrepreneurship and strategic management. And uh, so I've, I've been teaching entrepreneurship at a couple different schools. I started a couple different programs that are nationally ranked. Our program here is nationally ranked. I, I founded that program. And uh, um, related to Buffett, um, or I don't know if you want me to wait and talk about that, but you know, I, I started getting into him you know, I've always been into him because I grew up in Omaha and I knew the families and his impact on Omaha, which is amazing uh, and a lot of great stories. Uh, but I, I really started to get into him back in 2007 when my cousin, Steve Nog, told me that he was inviting schools to Omaha for a day to hang out with him. So, uh, yeah, so let's take that as the next step here and, and with so many books on Warren Buffett, my favorite being Snowball. Uh, why write this one? Well, you know, it didn't come. Uh, I didn't like just kind of wake up and say, oh, I'm going to write a book on Warren Buffett. Because of what you just said, because there, there's uh, been a lot of books that have already been written on him. And so what I was doing for like the first nine years, I was doing research and I uh, was hanging out with Warren Buffett with my students, I took six groups of students to go visit him. And, you know, we would go have lunch with him, have a Q&A with him for two and a half hours, uh, and then visit some of his subsidiaries in Omaha, Nebraska Furniture Mart and Borsheim's. Uh, and so I started to document all this stuff. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. The, the the idea of writing a book on Warren Buffett never even entered my mind uh, while I was doing that um, until, you know, after about nine years, I, I started to, to think, hey, you know, I have a lot of really good quality information, um, not secondary information, but primary research that hasn't been anywhere else before because I'm hanging around with him. So I thought, you know, that, and I started reading all these books on Warren Buffett and I noticed some gaps in the literature. So some of the gaps, of course, was that convinced me to go ahead and write the book were, were you know, how many people from Omaha wrote a book on Warren Buffett? Zero. How many people knew the family? Zero. Uh, and um, I had connections and I interviewed Susie Buffett for the book. 
Uh, and Charlie, most of the Buffett books didn't have anything about Charlie Munger. I, I put in, yeah. I put in a, a, a chapter on Charlie. I love Charlie or I loved Charlie. And I, it's really sad that he passed away. Uh, I had, I was so much into Charlie Munger <laughs> that, that I did two chapters on Charlie Munger and uh, my publisher Columbia told me to, to knock one out or combine them into one. Uh, so I did that. And, uh, but I love that chapter in the book. Again, mo there haven't even really been a lot of books on Charlie Munger. All of a sudden, after he died, everybody's writing a book on Charlie Munger. That's pretty funny. Yeah, but, as uh, I was going to say, that would be a great book because um, he's kind of the mystery man behind uh, Warren Buffett. And I, mean, I didn't realize, and we'll talk more about this, but I didn't realize they knew each other since like elementary school. That, well, they didn't know each other at the same uh, elementary school, but they went to the same one because Charlie was six years older than Warren. Right. But they they also them. worked at at uh, the same store, uh, Warren's uh, grocery store, the family grocery store. And there's some interesting stories there about, you know, uh, their uh, earnest was his yeah. grandfather. And, and you talk about that in the book, which was really Yeah, and he got a lot of his values from Ernest. His grandfather is very stern, very frugal, very hardworking, very humble. Um, and and when and Warren was working at the grocery store, uh, he told this story. And it was uh, this. This is really a big deal. It, it, he he had a friend, and him were. Uh, it was a blizzard one day, and they were outside, and they were shoveling for like twelve hours straight, trying to get rid of all this snow because all these trucks were trying to come in with food uh, for the store, and they're out there shoveling and everything. And he goes back to Ernest at the end of the day, and Ernest goes, "Well, how much money should I give you?" You know, and, and uh, Warren didn't really know how much uh, uh, he should ask for. And, and uh, Ernest goes, a dime is too little and a dollar is too much. And so <laughs> Warren didn't know. And that was a big lesson for him because he had no idea how much he should ask for. And he realized when he did ask that he asked for too little. And, and he learned a great big um, uh, lesson there from that experience but he also learned from that experience that he never wanted to do manual labor ever again and he wanted to be an entrepreneur and he realized because of that at age 10 that money would would bring him to that place where he could be a, a, an entrepreneur and do his own thing so what, what's your definition of an entrepreneur uh, well, there's over 60 different definitions of, of entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship. But you've been teaching it a very long time. Yeah, you know, everybody's probably going to have a different definition. My definition is more about opportunity-seeking behavior that can be utilized in any organization. Most people think of it as just starting a company. I don't look at it that way. Sure, starting a company is part of it. 
But uh, I think that, you know, looking for opportunity within any organization, I mean, I look at you're, you're a professor and you're doing this. You're, you're definitely an entrepreneur. You know, I, I consider myself to be an entrepreneur and I'm in academia and I'm here. I am writing a book on Warren Buffett, you know, and, and going on podcasts and talking to people. And uh, so, you know, you can be an entrepreneur uh uh, or a corporate entrepreneur in a bigger organization, uh, or a entrepreneur, a nonprofit entrepreneur, so- social entrepreneur. And I think Buffett has been all of those. You know, even when he was a kid, he started out selling lemonade when he was four. And then he he did all of these entrepreneurial things as a kid. He was a serial entrepreneur by the time he was like five or six. Doing things, and and he, uh, and he owned a farm, right? Uh, that yeah, he rented yeah. out at what thirteen years old. Yeah, you know, is that great? Yeah, he owned a forty-acre farm when he was so young. Um, yeah. and and his basis, I think the the most interesting thing that I learned from writing the book uh, was how Warren's background uh, was tragic. You know, most people think he was just this this rich guy. You know, oh, he never had to worry about anything. But really, Warren grew up in the Great Depression. His father lost his job, lost all the family money. Uh, his, his father wouldn't give him a job at the grocery store, but he did give him you know, groceries, but yep. he had to pay, he had to pay it back, you know? And uh, so uh, that was the the biggest thing that, that uh, influenced him and his, his uh, mother started to freak out. Uh, and she already had some health issues and she used to take out some abuse on Warren uh, and his two sisters. So, uh, there we go. You're back. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope I was but, never gone. But there was, uh, there was. Th- this had a a huge impact on Warren because his mother's telling him he's worthless. You know, and how how would you feel if your mom was telling you you were worthless when he was so young? So, um, not so long after that, here he is being an entrepreneur selling lemonade on his neighbor's uh, driveway, and then he's he's off to the races with doing all these entrepreneurial things. Uh, and so, you ha- he doesn't really think that much of higher education. I know this is not the appropriate thing to be saying, but he'll say it to you. Uh, he thinks the best, the best thing that you can do is, is, is get work experience, get business experience. And he thinks the most successful business people are people with the most business experience that think way outside of the box. And he didn't want to go to college. His father forced him to go to college. So he went to the University of Pennsylvania for a couple of years. He wanted to drop out after the first year. And uh, 
His father didn't let him. And then he wanted to drop out after the second year, and he did drop out of college. And uh, he went back to Nebraska because his father wanted him to get a degree. And this is a great story is, is that while he was at Nebraska and Lincoln, he uh, started delivering papers again. He used to do that when he was younger, but he had 50 people underneath him delivering papers when he was uh, uh, 19 years old at Nebraska. And uh, after that, you know, he got his degree and then he applied to Harvard. Harvard rejected him for school. They said, you're too young, go get some work experience. And then he ended up at Columbia because of uh, the books that he read of Benjamin Graham, The Intelligent Investor and Security Analysis. And Benjamin Graham had the biggest impact on him really uh, related to the stock market. Uh, and that's where he initially got exposed to value investing. Um, he was probably around 20 years old then. So I have a couple of questions for you about entrepreneurs. After, and I always ask this about people who write books on entrepreneurs. Are highly successful entrepreneurs born or can they be developed? That's a tough question. You know, I don't know if there's a real good answer to that. You know, again, you know, it's so subjective. I've taught this for 34 years. Um, you know, on the first day of class when I teach entrepreneurship of the semester, I, I draw a picture on the board of a uh, refrigerator and it, I'm a what? terrible artist. So most of the kids, I ask them what it is and nobody knows what it is. And I tell them it's a refrigerator. And then I open the door and I say, now tell me what's in the refrigerator. And uh, uh, none of them know. And I tell them there's nothing in the refrigerator. This is what entrepreneurs are. They're hungry. You know, and and I can't teach you that. I can't teach you to be hungry. Uh, from my experience. So what usually happens by the end of the first day is the the kids that are the real entrepreneurs are smiling after I do that. And they come down and they want to talk to me at the end of class and they're all excited and they're either an entrepreneur already or they have an idea and they're excited and and uh and the kids that aren't as entrepreneurial are just kind of giving me frowns or i have their mouths open you know being an entrepreneur is pretty rare and I've read um, recently that the percentage of people going into entrepreneurship has actually been decreasing the last few years. Why, why do you uh, think that? Uh, I think uh, that some people, uh, when if they've grown up in an entrepreneurial household, and which is going to be one of my next questions here, is seeing that the parents have worked so hard six, seven days a week that they want more of a balanced life. And that's a very hard thing to get as an entrepreneur is having a life balance, work-life balance. And so I think that there's, uh, even my daughter has a, a global communications company and she has great clients all over the world, but she said, I don't want to work, uh, grow it so big uh, that uh, the company owns me. 
I don't own yeah. the company anymore. And I think I hear a lot of uh, entrepreneurs. And what drives you, of course, is that you have a mission. And that's what really drives you at the end of the day. It's never about the money. It's always about the mission and wanting uh, to make a, a, a significant difference. Uh, you mentioned coming from a family of entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurship. History encourages future family entrepreneurs. Is that like any profession where people come from a line of policemen, firemen, or anything that people typically join like the family business? So if your family is entrepreneurial, you typically want to be an entrepreneur. It's in the blood almost. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good point. Uh, we actually did research on this. Uh, and uh, we wrote an article that people that have a family member, either like a parent uh, or a grandparent that's an entrepreneur, are more likely, significantly more likely to be an entrepreneur. So I would imagine that it would be similar uh, in other areas as well with people. How much is Buffett's personality and down-to-earth persona from being a Midwesterner? And how different do you think he would have been if he had grown up in New York? I mean, he went to college there, but that was only a short period of time. But he also worked on Wall Street for a couple of years under uh, Ben Graham at his uh, partnership. That's where he became a millionaire initially at the age of 25. Um, ben, ben Graham actually told him not to live in New York City after he worked for him, after Graham shut down, the, the retired from his partnership. And, and Warren's father told him not to live in New York City as well. Um, and so I think those people had a big, big effect on him and he wanted to come back to Omaha. He was already wealthy by the time he was 25. He didn't have to work anymore. You know, he didn't have to worry about money because he was so smart. He could live on the interest and dividends and capital gains from the money he made from the partnership uh, when he worked there on Wall Street. But um, yeah, so uh, I think he loves Omaha and, and he loves it because it's, he can go into a McDonald's or a village inn, which is a pancake place there. And nobody really will bother him too much. They may, you know, say hi to him and everything, but he would just get bomb blasted in other places uh, if he went there. You know, he, he doesn't need a security guy around him all the time in Omaha. You know, about, you know, I, I, been to the last 14 shareholder meetings and uh i've seen how his a good indication of this is his house i always drive by his house every time i go to omaha and, and there's no like guards there <laughs> or anything like that you know the only thing i've noticed at his house uh whereas lebron james has a 24-hour uh security detail in front of his house but um, he's just got this little gate. That's it. You know, so he's a very humble guy. Midwestern people tend to be hardworking, you know, very humble people. And he's very indicative of that. He's like your grandfather. He has nothing to prove. He does what he loves every day. 
and and he'll tell you, I love what I do and I love the people that I work with. That's why I do what I do. He, you mentioned that by the time he dies, he'll give him away a hundred billion dollars. I read his kids and ex-wife had, but I thought he was giving it to the Gates Foundation because they have a process and methodology for selecting causes and organizations. What causes inspire him? What, what does he like to support? Well, that that's that's been on shaking ground here over the past couple of years. You know, with with Bill Gates' divorce. Uh, uh, and Warren was on the board of the Gates Foundation. I think he resigned from that. And of course, uh, Bill, not exactly sure where Bill is on that, but I I get the feeling from talking to Susie uh, when I interviewed her that there's going to be a lot more money coming her way. So his three kids each have their own foundation. And uh, like Susie's got two different foundations. She's like really into, you know, education and helping people that can't afford to go to school uh, and women's rights. And Pete's like really into to uh, women being abused. They've got a whole if you go on their uh, uh, foundation websites, they've got all these different causes that they're into and and. Uh, of course, you know, Warren is very happy that they're, they're doing all of this. And Howie, who is the, the uh, oldest son, uh, is really into farming. And so he does a lot of time over in Africa, helping people in Africa with their farming. So the, the children have taken up the mantle of, of giving away the money. Yeah, I, initially it was $2 billion per child. And the majority of it was going to the Gates Foundation. But then after the divorce, um, I read an article that things are going to be changing. Um, I can't quote exactly how it's going to be changing. I don't even know if Warren has even talked about it. But that'll be something to look for. Um, And we may not even know it until Warren dies. Um, let, let's talk about what, what's the profile of the kind of leaders he liked to invest in. The industries have a wide range from furniture to candy to technology, and certainly gender doesn't really matter to him because he invested that woman who had a furniture business. I think it was in Omaha, right? Um, so what kind of managers, leaders does he like to invest in? Uh so I'll give you an example is uh, this is actually one of my favorite stories about uh, Warren investing in a company. So uh, her name is Mrs. Blumkin or Mrs. B. Yeah, that's and it. Yeah. She uh, she was born in, in uh, Minsk, Belarus, and grew up there, and uh, she never went to school. Uh, and she ended up working at her mother's store. Uh, and at six, by the time she was 16, she was managing six people. And then she ended up getting married and her husband, uh, to get out of the draft, moved to the United States. Uh, and then she waited to come to the United States and she had to 
uh, go through the border, the Russian-China border. And in order to get through the border, she didn't have a passport or anything. She bribed the guards, and she said that she was going to bring back a, a bottle of brandy uh, to them when she came back, and they let her through. And she ended up making it to the United States through Seattle, and she ended up uh, being in Omaha with her husband. And in Omaha, what they did was uh, he started a pawn shop, and she started a, a used clothing and used furniture store in the basement of the pawn shop when she was 37, I want to say, 37 years old. And she grew that through hard work, you know, 70 hours a week. And she sold cheap and she told the truth. And she grew that into the largest private furniture store in the country. In Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, she didn't know English. She didn't know how to write English. She didn't know how to speak English. And she was able to do this. This is why Warren, you know, Warren came in and bought it. Uh, I think for like 55 million on a two-page contract and a handshake. But this kind of stuff really influences Warren because, you know, his philosophy, he'll tell you is, is that, again, the most successful business people that he's met in his life are the people with the most business experience that think way outside of the box. And, and he keeps the managers, right? Like he kept that family continued and still runs. Exactly. That exactly. Every time he invests in a company, it's rare that he just, uh, I don't, has he ever gotten rid of a management team when he bought in? He typically no. invests in them. That's part of the deal that he looks at. He looks at the people. You know, can he trust the people? And he you likes to make it like eight criteria. What, what likes, is his criteria? <clears throat> on purchasing a company or investing in a company? Yeah. yeah. Well, he'd rather invest or not invest, but buy the company outright. That's what he would prefer to do. Uh, so the problem is now is he has $157 billion in cash, and that's not going to really move the needle very much. Actually, I read an article today uh, that um, over the past 20 years, he's about even with the S&P 500 because he's gotten too big. And even at the last shareholder meeting, Charlie and him were talking about, would you rather invest in the S&P 500 or Berkshire Hathaway? And Warren said, uh, Berkshire. He said the S&P 500 and Charlie said Berkshire Hathaway. So that was eye-opening when he said that. Warren didn't even say to invest in Berkshire Hathaway. But, you know, some of the things, you know, if you look at uh, companies that he'll look at, he'll look at before he invests is he'll look at, uh, you know, is it selling at a discount? You know, is it undervalued? What's the valuation? And it's tough to put a valuation on things. For me, it was the hardest thing in writing the book was trying to figure out what the valuation formula is. And I asked Warren when I was out to lunch with him, I go, how do you value a company? And he says, said the discounted cash flow. So I definitely added that to the book. I put three chapters in the book on 
on value investing. And one chapter was uh, looking at Apple and I took, took the reader through how to value Apple, all the steps and all the ratios that you would want to look at and what they should be, you know, return on equity, uh, net income uh, and things like that. But does he have a, and we have a question, actually, we have a question from the audience and then I'll get to my question. Warren Buffett's a major investor in Apple. What makes Apple as a company interesting for him? Is it only the money Apple is making or is there another story behind his investment? Question from the audience. Well, I don't think that Warren initially invested in Apple. Their uh, first investment in Apple was in 2016. And he has two new co-CIOs. They're not so new anymore, but uh, Ted Weschler and Todd Coombs. One of them, I think, invested in, in Apple because Warren always kind of ran away from technology companies. So it was kind of a surprise that they, they invested in Apple. And uh, Warren and Charlie, all of a sudden, you know, they realized I think they started buying it at around 109 or 106, uh, and today it's somewhere around 185. Um, and and they've made a lot of money on Apple, but it, it, it's it's problematic, in my opinion. Apple, you know, they have at one one point they said they'd buy all of Apple, but now you have the all this stuff going on with China. This is very problematic, and China is not buying as much Apple product. It's down like 20%. And a lot of the, the operational stuff is going on in India now. They're making all this uh, the a Apple uh, product. So there's a, there's a lot of variables that are uh, questionable that are out there related to Apple. What 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 changed his mind uh, in, in investing in technology companies, or is that mostly driven by his associates, and he knows they're smart people and kind of goes along with that? I I would say exactly what you said that it, it was his co CIOs that started to get into this stuff. Uh, I I gave a presentation at uh, University of Iowa. A few years ago, I think it was 2017, and somebody asked me, everybody always asked me, you know, basically, how do you make money? How do you invest it, you know, everywhere I go? And uh, so I put up a slide, and it was Amazon, and I said, this is who Warren Buffett loves, and he says that Jeff Bezos is the best manager in the world, and da-da-da-da-da, yet what I don't understand is why he has never invested in Amazon. So, um, but he eventually did. He he owns just a little bit of Amazon now, uh, which I, th I still think is a mistake because I think it's definitely a, a great company with a great uh, moat. You uh, mentioned in the book that Warren Buffett said, you only need five good ideas to get rich. What does he mean by that? Um, I think, you know, a really good idea doesn't come around very often and, uh, you've got to really, uh, put your money where your mouth is and, and 
you know, in in his career in running Berkshire Hathaway, the stock market has gone down 50% three times. So three times, that would be a really good time. And he actually came out in an op-ed in the New York Times uh, during the Great Recession and said to buy stocks. And that was in October. Uh, uh, of course, I didn't buy. Uh, but the, the market went down another 20% after he said that. So it went down a total of 50%. But, you know, there are times when, you know, he ended up buying a bunch of Coke in the 87 crash. And he's had 400 million shares of Coke. Uh, and I would say that was one of his better investments. Uh, American Express, when he had his partnership, was down like 50%. And he ended up uh, investing in that and making a lot of money during his partnership years. And I think he's still, that's still his fourth or fifth largest holding uh, that he has. And Apple, of course, is his largest investment that he has. Now, what's troubling, again, I'm going to go back to what's troubling me about Apple is you know, all the stuff that's going on. And he sold some last quarter. <laughs> you know, I, I can't remember the last time he sold any. Uh, he, it was only 1%, but it, w it was he sold 1% of Apple, of his shares. You, you wrote in the book that, uh, uh, and I was shocked to read this, that 45% of Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio was Apple stock. Uh, and I've read that he and Charlie Munger warned people about having an over-concentration in one company or industry. Does that worry him at all? Well, I think it should, you know, after what's going on right now. He didn't have to worry that, about that before until all the stuff with China. But uh, no, I think what, what he emphasizes is that <laughs> diversification is for fools, that if you really know the company inside and out and you know you can get it at a discount and it's a great company, it's okay to put in a lot of money into it. You know, he did that with uh, American Express during his partnership uh, days and uh, he did that with Coke and he did that with uh, Apple. So I heard, I was reading or listening to another guy talk about his decisions that, you know, Warren, uh, was talking about he, he's made 10 or 12 decisions that that really have helped Berkshire the most. And those decisions include people that you hire, you know, the impact that they have on your company. And Ajit Jain, who's the head of insurance at uh, Berkshire Hathaway, is somebody that he talks about at the shareholder meetings every year about how great of a job that uh, he does for the company. But you've got to put your money where your mouth is, is what he's telling you when it arrives, because it doesn't arrive very often. Uh, what was his biggest uh, professional failure and what did he learn and we could learn from that? His biggest failure was buying Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, he wanted to sell his shares. This is in his partnership days. Uh, he had seven partnerships from 56 to 69. He made 25 million and his partners made 100 million. Uh, but one of his uh, 
during his partnership year, he uh, Can you repeat that question again? I'm sorry, I lost my thought. I, I was asking, what was his biggest professional failure? And what oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. What could we learn from it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was trying to sell his shares, and I think the offer was 1150 and the, the CEO agreed to paying 1150 but then the paper that he got from the CEO said, uh, 11 and three ace and Warren was furious that he was trying to screw him out of a, a few bucks. And so he ended up buying the company and firing the CEO because of what he did to him. And this was because his father just died. And Charlie was saying, you should have talked to me before you did that. You know, and, and he was saying he did that because the father just passed away. So it's the importance of making rational decisions, maybe having somebody else look at what you're doing before you do it, uh, because he said he, he's lost 300 to 400 billion dollars in, in potential profits because of that blunder. Interesting. Um, you had a, a list of all the Berkshire Hathaway boards. How often do they meet and how do they get the most out of their boards? I'm wondering, you know, Warren Buffett has all these boards. He's on. How does he get the most out of these boards where they add real value? And how much time can he really spend on these things? I think he's been dropping off of boards. Uh, I don't think he's on as many, but his own board I know over the past couple of years, he's added a few people. Uh, Chris Davis, who's a very famous investor, very successful. Uh, uh, and another guy from Omaha, who's an investor, he added on as well. I can't remember his name. Uh, his son, Howie, will take over for him as chairman of the board when, when he passes away to keep the culture going. At Berkshire, he put his daughter on recently as a board member. I think what's important to Warren is that maintaining the culture of Berkshire Hathaway. He doesn't want other people to come in and change what it what it's been about, you know. And and it, it's not about money. It's you know about doing the right thing. He's really into doing the right thing uh, and helping people and being fair and honest and having integrity. Uh, that's why people love Warren Buffett. We go to Warren Buffett whenever there's a huge problem. Who's on TV when when the Great Recession happened, when we had the, the scare of uh, COVID? Who's on, who's on TV? Warren Buffett. Because we can trust him. Yeah, we he settles everything down. I remember... Uh, I guess maybe in the early 90s, people even talked about wouldn't he make a good president because people tr he had such high trust value. Yeah, but he he's too smart for that. He would never become the president. <laughs> um, uh, although, as you write, he has significant investments in fintech uh, through banks like Newbank. He and Charlie Munger aren't fan uh, aren't fans of cryptocurrency. What, why is that? 
it, it's it's very similar to his views with gold. And his views with gold is, you know, it, it just kind of sits there. And you, you have to hope that somebody else is going to pay more than what you paid for it. And that would be the same thing with crypto. And Charlie even goes further. Charlie just hates crypto. And he gives, his rationale is that a lot of crypto is being used for illegal activity, you know, paying off drugs in the underworld and and all kinds of illicit behavior. He calls it rat poison squared. Yeah, they I they will never invest in cryptocurrencies. Now, one thing that I talk about in the book is, is that they don't like cryptocurrencies, but but they do like the technology, blockchain technology behind it. There is value in that. Um, what did he learn and people uh, from people and businesses working in the family grocery store? How much did that impact the way he invested working in that family uh, grocery store? I think uh, I think a, a, a combination, not only the grocery store, but all the things that he did as a kid. He got all this great business experience in different industries that contributed to his his knowledge. It was like getting an MBA and an undergraduate degree when he was a kid and doing all these different things. And his father, you know, his father, well, he got laid off and lost all the family money, but he did become an entrepreneur and he opened his own brokerage. Uh, and Warren was down there. Uh, reading all these investment books he read by the time he was like 10 or 11 he read all the investment books on the stock market in the omaha public library twice you know i don't know about you but when i was 10 or 11 yeah <laughs> i was reading richie rich comic books not investment books you know <laughs> Um, I've heard him talk about luck, and, and I've seen him and Bill Gates many times um, talk at conferences uh, when they're on stage about luck and the right place, right time, which every successful um, person I've ever interviewed says, if it wasn't for luck, I wouldn't be standing here right now, or I was at the right place, the right time, uh, and have credited success that way. Does he believe in the concept of ma uh, uh, manifesting that you could um, want something and make it happen because you want to make it happen? Uh, I, I think when he was uh, 10 years old and we talked about that earlier and he had a vision of becoming an entrepreneur, that was kind of what you're talking about there. And not only that, but he, he had a vision for himself of becoming a millionaire by the time he was 30, um, I would imagine that knowing Warren, uh, the way I know Warren, that he has done that throughout his life. Now, there's a downside to that since I'm an entrepreneurship professor uh, and I know the, uh, the research on entrepreneurs is they tend to be a little bit too overconfident at times. So they may have this vision, this is what I want, 
but just because you want it doesn't mean that it can happen. And you have to be realistic about yourself and your ambitions and uh, things of that nature. Uh, you were going to dedicate two chapters of this book to Charlie Munger, but it ended up being one as your publisher encouraged you just to consolidate. And Charlie Munger was a lawyer. Well, what effect did he have on, on Warren Buffett as an investor and a leader of the organization? Well, Charlie was fabulous. Uh, they met in 1958 at a dinner in Omaha. Uh, you know, they're both from Omaha. Uh, and um, Warren went back to Omaha for his father's funeral. And uh, this doctor, Davis, invited Charlie to, to the dinner. And that's where they initially met each other in 1958. And I guess at the dinner, they, they got along so well, they were laughing so much and they were on the ground. Uh, and that's how their friendship started back then. But Charlie, you know, he ended up moving out to, to California. He, he went to, to law school and became a lawyer. He hated being a lawyer. Uh, and he actually was doing what Warren was doing, but he was doing it on a smaller scale. Uh, and he was making a lot of money doing it, being an investment counselor. Uh, and uh, uh, Warren and him kept in touch. And uh, eventually Warren uh, invited him to be the uh, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. And I, Charlie, I think, gave Warren, they were best friends and they were like together for what, 60 years or something like that. Uh, I, I can't even, even imagine Warren, how he feels without being able to talk to Charlie after 60 years of doing this. This has got to be hurting him and his abilities uh, as an investor, in my opinion, and just in life personally. And I mean, yeah. I mean, it was like a marriage, 60 years. Exactly. Yeah, you know, and... I wondered why did Charlie Munger, uh, they were together so long professionally, why didn't he have the same amount of wealth or, or something close to it? I mean, I think I read that uh, when he died just recently, um, his net worth was $2 billion. I mean, that's a huge disparity between his net worth and Warren Buffett's net worth. Good question. Uh, well, you know, we, we can speculate on that, that was he, what, what, at what point was he making decisions? Uh, how much was he making the decisions? Um, I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I, I don't know if I could tell you that, you know, what I've, talked about before in a couple other podcasts is I'm not sure exactly what he did in their relationship. Where did all the ideas come from? Were they from Warren? Were they from both of them? I don't think we know that. But I was curious about in all those years, you would think he'd invest uh, similarly, you know, that he would just put the same money in that Warren Buffett was. And even if it was a lesser amount, Warren Buffett's worth like 150 billion, you would at least expect him to be worth maybe a third of that and not even remotely close to a third of that. That's what uh, surprised me when I read about 
his net worth. But that's all right. Um, what are some of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's keys to success? And you list some of those uh, in the book. Um, <clears throat> I would say um, my favorite one are don't hang around with with people that uh, that you don't trust or that uh, don't have integrity or that make your life chaotic uh, or situations that make your life chaotic. Uh, and Charlie mentioned this, I don't know, a couple of weeks before he died. He was really emphasizing that, you know, so be careful about who you hang around with. Uh, and that's one of the biggest things that I learned from the book is hang around with people that, that are better than you. Um, you know, it's okay to hang around with people that you've been friends with for a long time, but be careful about who you hang around with. Uh, Warren has, has always been very humble. Uh, he gets along really well with people. He has a very high IQ and a very high EQ. Uh, very, very few people have both of those, but he has those. Another thing that I learned from Warren when I met him was uh, there was something going on in his head when he met me and he was looking at me. And I think trust is a huge issue for him. And I'm thinking that, you know, ever since his childhood, you know, your childhood has such a huge impact on you uh, with his mother and his father losing his job and everything. But, and also he had a friend, a really good friend that, uh, was in a, uh, over in a Jewish friend over in Europe during World War II, and they were hiding from the Nazis, uh, and somebody turned him in to the Nazis, and he ended up going to a concentration camp, and uh, he lived and he survived, and, and he became really good friends with Warren. So, you know, he told told me the story over lunch, and and uh, so I'm thinking, you know, this guy when he meets new people. Trust is huge for him. And I, I think it's like that for most people that have a lot of wealth uh, or that are famous. You know, how can they trust somebody? Yeah, that they like them for them and not for exactly what they do for them. Yep. See that all the time. Uh, what what were uh, you mentioned here? And we talk about some of his mistakes, but you have a list of of uh, mistakes that he kind of made. Uh, what were is there one in particular that he was very he wished he really regretted more so than anything else? He says, uh, of course, Berkshire uh, was his biggest mistake, but he also says that the mistakes of omission were huge. Some of them, and I'll give you an example: Intel. He had an opportunity to to go in on the IPO of Intel which he would have made who knows how much money on Google, an IPO on Google. He didn't invest in Amazon when it was hot. Um, and Microsoft, he didn't invest in Microsoft. I mean, think about all those <laughs> that he missed out on. But then again, you know, he, he'll tell you that he just wants to focus on his circle of competence. And that's why he's become so successful. 
Um, what are some of the personal lessons you can share with us from you writing this book? Uh, personal lessons, I would say that, uh, you know, Warren, the first thing Warren would tell us when we walked in to go visit him is uh, uh, the most important decision that you'll make in your life is who you marry. And so, you know, when you're around a bunch of 20 and 21 year olds, uh, you know, that's, that's a big deal, you know. Uh, probably the, the, my favorite thing that I learned in the book that I practice every day now is never say anything negative about anybody um, and, and only say good things about people. And I try to shy away from people that do talk negatively about other people behind their backs because they're probably going to be doing it to you when you walk away. So, and, and that's from Benjamin Franklin, by the way, and that's a Charlie uh, quote that he always lived by that he would talk about. Warren measures his success by how many people love him, not by his uh, amount of money. He doesn't need to do that, obviously. He says if you need to to make 2x versus x that that doesn't necessarily make you happy that 2x uh and do what you love work for somebody that you admire invest in continuous learning uh invest in in uh self-improvement and his self-improvement that he did was Dale Carnegie uh, you know, he took a Dale Carnegie class and he became really popular and learned how to to uh, get along better with people, hang around with people that are better than you. And uh, he'll tell you that, you know, one of the most successful people that he's hung around with was was uh, Tom Murphy. He used to run Capital Cities and ABC, and he learned a lot of lessons about management and entrepreneurship from Tom Murphy. You know. Warren's corporate office has 25 people, and he has over 360,000 employees. So I would say Warren's a, a decentralized management guy, very entrepreneurial. He hires only the best people, and he leaves them alone. Uh, one of the things uh, is interesting is that his kids – um, just didn't grow up with great wealth and gave them big trust and they didn't have to do anything. What's his advice to parents about financially supporting your children and making sure they stay grounded? Uh, well, I think I could just kind of explain that in a story, a quick story. So Susie, uh, his daughter, came to him after she got married and she wanted to... to redo her kitchen and she wanted a loan for like 30 or forty thousand dollars and she went to warren and asked him for it and and of course you know what the, the response was from warren he, he said he gave her the no no i can't do this for you you know and uh one thing i've learned about warren is that he respects people that are persistent and that are very creative uh, but he also respects people that uh, do it on their own, that make it happen. He's not going to give you anything. And that's one thing that I learned 
from taking all these trips to go visit him, he wasn't just going to invite me because I wrote him a letter. I had to do something really unique. Uh, and I haven't even talked about that, but, but uh, something outside of the box to get invited to go to go visit him. So um, persistence and creativity were probably two of the biggest things I learned from my dealings with Warren. Here's my last question for you uh, before we let you go. What's it like to be at one of his stockholder meetings? I mean, I hear that's like uh, like a hot ticket uh, to go to. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, it's part carnival, part... Uh, um, or chaos, cult. Uh, it, it It's crazy, you know, but the beauty of it is, is you've got all these really smart people there from all over the world, and they're there to learn as much as possible from Warren and Charlie. Now it's only Warren. We'll see how that is. But it, it's really a lot of fun. You, if you haven't done it, you should do it one day uh, because you're running out of time. Um. You know, he's, what is he, 93? He'll be 94 in August. But he's not going to retire. He, he'll he do what Charlie did. He'll he'll die being Go a CEO. Sure. He will never retire. I will guarantee you that. Un understood. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I mean, certainly he's one of the great legends in, in business history, not just now, but throughout the history of the world. And it must be impossible to see another Warren Buffett ever emerge. I mean, with his success record over what, 75 years, something like that. And I, I don't, I don't think it's just about money either. I think the beauty of Warren Buffett is that, that um, he sets an example for all of us on a personal level on how to treat people and to be a better person and to care for others. That's the beauty of Warren Buffett. And we can trust him. He's honest. He's not out to screw people to get a buck. Understood. Well, I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you everybody for coming and uh, listening to uh, <clears throat> uh, this great book that's about Warren Buffett. I hope other people get the book. And Todd, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Mark, for having me on. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. My pleasure. All right, everyone, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.